Natalie Battaglia hunts for exoplanets, Earth-sized planets beyond our solar system that might have liquid water and harbor life. She works with the Kepler mission at NASA, searching among millions of stars that emit compelling signals captured during the four-year mission of the Kepler Space Telescope. For her, it's only a matter of time, a when, not an if, that we discover planets where we know life exists. And I've never met anyone who speaks more intriguingly than Natalie Battaglia about the connection between science, love, and gratitude for life. She is a luminous voice for the way exploring the heavens as we do that now is bringing the beauty of the cosmos and the exuberance of scientific discovery closer home to us all. We are extending our senses out into the cosmos in a very real, tangible way. And that makes it so much easier to capture our imagination, to inspire us. You know, through the Curiosity rover, we are standing there in our hiking boots on the surface of Mars. Man, I can, I can practically hear the crunching of the dirt underneath my feet. You know, it feels like I could bend down and pick up a rock and toss it over that hill over there, you know? So in in a very real way, uh, these experiments are extending our senses out into the cosmos. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Natalie Vitalia is a research astronomer at NASA Ames Research Center and a mission scientist with the Kepler Space Telescope. I spoke with her in 2012. Natalie Battaglia helped discover the first approximately Earth-sized rocky planet outside our solar system. Here on Earth, she also keeps a lyrical Facebook page, like this entry from March 2012 on the third anniversary of the Kepler telescope launch. She wrote, I am inspired by the way that science connects us to one another, transcending borders, transcending time. I am inspired by the way that science is reuniting us with the universe, with these distant places in the galaxy which are becoming destinations, real worlds in their own right, with their own stories, and who knows what else. I've really enjoyed just digging into things you've written, uh, interviews you've given, watching your the panel you were on at World Science Festival, and also looking at your Facebook page, which is wonderfully profound. Oh, <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, you, you've described yourself now as a, as a planet hunter. And I wonder if you'd heard that phrase in your childhood. Is there, was there anything in your earliest life that pointed at that? This as being uh, where not, your passion would go. Yeah, no, <laughs> not at all. Not even remotely. Um, you know, when I was a kid, gosh, what did I want to do? I wanted to be a gymnast. I wanted to be like Olga Corbett and Nadia Comaneci. Right. And I wanted, you know, I was a cheerleader in high school and, you know, my parents um, didn't go to college. So I didn't really have examples in my life of what that was. And I didn't know what it meant to be a scientist. I imagined... It as a boring job. I imagined a, you know, Caucasian male, middle <laughs> age, dressed in a white lab coat, right. sitting by himself in a lab, you know, that, that wasn't me. Mm-hmm. Um, nevertheless, there were things along the way, you know. Um, I'm perhaps too young for, uh, to remember the Apollo program. I was, I think, two or three years old. 
when when uh, man landed on the moon, so I don't really have that as a guidepost. But uh, certainly the shuttle program in the 1980s when I was in high school. Right, right. Uh, really, really, of course, you know, it, it touched us all. We all got that bug of... Um, exploration. And, you know, I saw that as just the most exciting job anybody could possibly have Mm. on planet Earth. So I think that that was the backdrop. I like the way you've seen you talking about how you got into science. And didn't you start out studying business in college? Is that right? I did. Yeah. yeah. And that you took a physics class and that you weren't actually very good at it, which is comforting. I think that's good for people to hear. But that Physics you were, is hard, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and the, you know, that you weren't immediately a genius, but that you had this epiphany around somebody explaining rainbows in oil puddles to you. Yes, that's exactly right. Um, I remember the moment very clearly. I enrolled in that physics class, and oh boy, I struggled. Man, it was just a completely new way of thinking. I had never had to do that before. Um, developing those analytical, you know, powers, um, uh, mental capacities was really new. Um, but it, but as you said, that key moment came. Uh, sitting in a lecture hall at UC Berkeley, you know, with those old wooden desks in one of these big <laughs> lecture halls, the dusty chalkboard at the front and, you know, the professor with the, the blazer and all of that. You can picture the scenario, you know, it's just stereotypical, yeah. right? And he's talking just kind of monotone in a monotone voice about refraction, which is the, you know, behavior of light uh, interacting with different media uh, bending the light waves and and separating out the different colors of light in different directions and how we see a rainbow as a consequence. And, and he's describing this, and he uses his analogy, the rainbow of color on an oil slick, you know, floating on top of water, which, of course, we've all seen. Mm-hmm. It's something so common to us. And, and at the same time, he's writing down all these mathematical equations on the board, and it just struck me at that moment, my gosh, you know, the universe is not a random collection of chaotic, you know, events. It's, it's, it can be explained with numbers. It can be explained with math. Even beauty can and be explained with numbers it, and with math. Ex- exactly. Yeah. And at that moment, I think I all of a sudden had this idea that, you know, maybe all the mysteries of the universe are there for us to discover. Mm. Maybe, maybe there's no limit to what we could know mm. if the universe is so ordered. And that was very profound to me. And so at that point, there was no going back. Right. <laughs> at that point, you know, despite the, the C I earned in that class, I was actually quite <laughs> proud of that C. I, I was very, very proud of that C and, and um, took it from there. And, and very quickly, I did learn how to think that way. And, and it changed my brain in exciting ways. So the sphere you've ended up taking this passion into is this world of looking for planets, or this world of exoplanets. I I wasn't sure what that meant, you know, when I first heard it. It's planets outside our solar system. That's right. We're looking for not not planets in our own solar system. We're looking for, you know, exo means out. So outside the solar system, planets orbiting, uh, gravitationally bound and orbiting other stars in our galaxy. And there was a great breakthrough in this in 1995. Could you could you explain what we learned then that's that's helped set this field off? 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, I actually fortuitously happened to be there. Um, <laughs> I didn't there know was that. A, there was, yeah, um, I was a graduate student at the time, and um, my advisor was responsible for constructing um, an instrument on the Keck 10-meter telescope in Hawaii. This was the world's largest telescope at the time. And I had the great fortune of being able to use some of the data that was taken, that very first light data from that telescope and that particular instrument. And so I think, actually, he got invited to go to this conference and talk about the data, but he couldn't go. And so he sent me instead. And very naively, as a graduate student, there I am sitting in the audience, and Michelle Mayor, a Swiss astronomer, gets up to give a talk. And there are television cameras kind of over to the side. And Michelle Mayor proceeded to tell us about the very first discovery of a planet orbiting another star in our galaxy. Um, this was 51 Peg. Hmm. 51 Peg is the name of the star. 51 Peg B is the name of the planet. And, you know, at the time, I mean, I listened and kind of took it all in, but it didn't really dawn on me at the time, I think, the the implications and where this was going. Right. Um, I've only later began to appreciate the, the historical significance of that event. Um, that was humanity's first uh, discovery of a planet orbiting another star like our sun. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being, today with astronomer Natalie Battaglia. She's with NASA's Kepler mission, which is searching for habitable planets. It's named after the 17th century astronomer who first described the laws of planetary motion. So one thing I've come to, I think, understand through researching you is that orbit, that planetary motion, um, is one of the critical things we're looking for when we're looking for planets that could be where life could be possible, right? Where somewhere that, that's exactly that could right. be habitable. Yeah. Planets in what they say is this Goldilocks zone of not too hot, not too cold, just right. Exactly. <laughs> we're looking for a planet for Goldilocks. That's yeah. right. <laughs> <laughs> Would you say a little yeah. bit more about about Kepler? Because I, I just you know yeah, I think he's not absolutely. he's in that league of Copernicus and Galileo and Newton, but I'm not, I'm not sure he's known quite as well. But I'm Johannes Kepler, yeah, he lived in the 1600s and uh, was a mathematician, very, very brilliant mathematician. But uh, he was also very, uh, you don't want to know if spiritual is the right word, but he also had this really deep reverence for nature. There's a story, um, I don't know how, you know how much of it is myth and how much is fact, but there's a story that he was in a, a classroom giving a lecture on mathematics and geometry talking about the platonic solids, these solids that are comprised of polygons, equal-sided polygons on the sides, and talking about how the geometry of them and how if you nest them together, uh, you get certain ratios between the radii of these shapes and, you know, just, just the geometry of it. And there's this great story that in the middle of this lecture, he's talking about these ratios, this geometry, and all of a sudden he stops. It's like stops him dead in his tracks and he realizes that the ratios he's describing are found in the solar system. 
And that seemed like an amazing coincidence to him, too amazing. He, it, it, all of a sudden, he, it seemed like, you know, that the, the numbers and the symmetries and the geometries uh, were intimately connected to the universe in a very fundamental, spiritual kind of way. Hmm. And so he got fixated on that idea, and he set about to prove it. The problem was that it now we know it doesn't strictly hold true. But but it seemed to him at the time, through his human perspective, that it was too big of a coincidence. It had to be true, you know? <laughs> I mean, what, what ended up happening was he spent, you know, decades of his life trying to prove it. And in doing so, stumbled upon what is now known as the laws of planetary motion. Oh, okay. Uh, he he a, ended up discovering completely different. Too. Right. It, well, it is, but also it's a testament to the scientific method. Mm-hmm. We have human biases. We have human perspectives, and they bias the way we look at the universe. But if we stick to the facts, if we stick to the observations, it's a method of removing that human perspective. And when we do so, amazing things happen. We stumble upon something that's even more wonderful. But is it also that that he had? I mean, he he was seeing something that was intriguing, and following that hunch, even though it didn't follow all the way through, um, took him in a direction that pointed at a real discovery. Is that a way? Is that also I, I, a way to see it, it? It's it's true, but I I you know it it. It could have also just been that he wanted to find out what moves the planets and right, how they right. move, you know. I mean, it was a coincidence that that Interesting. Uh, inspiring thought led him to the laws of planetary motion because there's really no connection between these platonic solids and the laws of gravity, oh, right? Okay. They're completely distinct. They're completely different. Um, another aspect of this story that has really touched me deeply is his persistence, And the fact that he just encountered roadblock after roadblock, he went down blind alleys, got to the end and had to turn around and walk his way back. And he never gave up. And he had, you know, times in his life where he was just feeling despair. Despair, total utter despair and failure. And yet he never gave up. And it's that persistence time and time again I'm seeing in, in the history of humanity. It's that persistence that always leads to greatness. Hmm. And and the Kepler mission itself is kind of an example of that because, you know, it's it's a NASA mission, but it actually was rejected by NASA five times <laughs> I before didn't know it was that. selected. Um, yeah. The guy who who, you know, this whose brainchild this was has been working on the idea since the night. 1980s. Hmm. And it wasn't until the year 2000 that it was finally selected. So, but but again, he was an example of a man who just And who, what's didn't, his name? Oh, William Baruki, mm-hmm. Bill Baruki mm-hmm. at NASA Ames. Uh, he just, uh, you know, doesn't see rejection or failure um, as he doesn't take it personally, you know, and yeah. just you just keep on going because you love the science. You love doing it. You love the the process of discovery and, and learning. Um, so that was another great lesson that I learned from Johannes. And when I when I when I listen and, and try to understand um, what the Kepler uh, mission is doing, like how you're doing that science, I mean, just in the context of what you just said, it certainly is an exercise in just incredible patience, right? Almost superhuman patience, right? <laughs> That's right. That you're looking at uh, millions of stars. You know, you're looking for, you know, in, in, in lay terms, in the needle in the haystack. It um, is a needle in a haystack, right? yeah. That, would, that might yeah. be habitable. 
Yeah, that's right. Um, you know, we're we're inferring the existence of these planets by looking for these dimmings of light that happen if a planet in its orbit about the star passes directly in front of the star, kind of eclipsing it. So slightly. that's what you're. So we're, what you're actually looking. What will be your signal, in fact, is not so, yeah, something you so see what but we're, the dimming of light. <laughs> it's, it's, so what we're doing is we're measuring the brightnesses of stars. Mm-hmm. Um, we're not actually taking pictures of stars and planets. We're measuring their brightnesses. And, and then this one patch of sky that we're looking at, like you said, there are millions of stars, literally four and a half million stars near the Milky Way, the plane of the Milky Way, a patch of sky that's about the size of my open hand, you know, stretched out in front of me. And we've chosen about 150,000 that we're monitoring. And so we collect the light through a space telescope, and and that light is sent down to a detector, which is just an array of CCDs. It's exactly what you have in your digital camera when you take a picture. And and those detectors are measuring the amount of light that falls on them from these 150,000 stars. And so we we take a measurement of all these stars simultaneously once every 30 minutes. And we've been doing that for three and a half years. (laughs) And the the point is you you take these measurements and you want to do it without blinking because eventually some of those stars are going to have planetary systems that are orbiting and aligned in in such a way that the planet will pass directly between our telescope and the star. And when it does that, that planet is going to cast its shadow out into space, and that shadow is going to sweep across our telescope. And our our detectors are going to perceive that as a dimming of light. And so that's how we're inferring the existence of the planets. Those signals are tiny, and they last a, a couple of hours, and they repeat, you know, once every year. So you really do need patience. You need to stare at these things consistently without blinking, uh, waiting for these signals to occur. was on the third anniversary of the Kepler launch. And what was that, 2009? Yeah, it launched in March of 2009. Yeah, that you wrote. I I wanted to read this back to you. It's very beautiful. Kepler saying, The diversity of the phenomena of nature is so vast and the treasures hidden in the heavens so rich, precisely in order that the human mind shall never be lacking in fresh nourishment. I thought that was an interesting way to describe at least some angle of... uh, you know what? What the scientific endeavor is. I mean, it, it, does that ring true for you? And that to one oh one way gosh. to think about the meaning of science: this nourishment of the human mind. Uh, absolutely. I mean, you read it, and it makes my eyes all all misty. <laughs> it, it really it, it does. I mean, I've I've lived it, and I I feel it, and um, and I have this intense, as I said, reverence for for the mysteries of the cosmos, and and this drive of discovery. You know, this desire to know. Mm-hmm. Maybe maybe it's because I want to find meaning for my own life. But, you know, there's something innate about us human beings that makes us want to seek the unknown, to push the boundaries, to find new horizons, to see new things. And, you know, I don't know why, why we're like that, but, but we are. You know, Carl Sagan has a, a quote that's akin to this. He said, understanding is a form of ecstasy. You know, it, it really mm. is. I mean, when we when we have these aha moments, you know, when we really understand something or there's a spark of understanding, um, we feel that euphoria. Um, 
I, I try to tell that to kids. You know, I, I talk to kids. In fact, I just got back from a two-week tour in India. Um, I spoke to probably something like three to 5,000 children in, in India, high school aged, and asked them, why? Why are we going out there and finding planets? Yeah. You know, why, why are we doing this? And the answers are very diverse, but a lot of people raise their hand and say, because I want to know if there's life out there. I, I also think that this act of discovery, this act of exploration, um, it changes us. You know, we're, we're, we're evolving towards something. Hmm. I often wonder, or I think about the transition that life underwent here on planet Earth when it went from water or ocean to land. Mm-hmm. And then I, I extrapolate that and I, I wonder what will happen to us as a species as we transition from land to space. Right. What potential will be released? You know, how, how will we change? How will we evolve? What implications does that have? And that, that thought excites me a lot. And the way you say that, it sounds like for you, it's a given that we'll make that transition. And I mean, I also hear it seems to me that, that a given or certainly a, a possibility that you and your colleagues are devoted to realizing is that maybe even in our lifetimes, we might look out and know that there are habitable planets. Is that right? Oh, absolutely. Well, that's a given. I mean, that's we're doing given. that now. Mm-hmm. That's ab- absolutely. I mean, that's Kepler. And it's only a matter of time before we will know of outposts that do harbor life. So, I mean, uh, how we're do, headed in that direction. How do you think about what is at stake in that discovery? Or what difference does it make in your imagination if that turns out to be true? When, when you look up at the sky... I'm sure all humans have had this experience of looking up into the sky on a very dark night and looking at those stars or that crescent moon or whatever it is. What do you feel? You know, you you feel wonder, of course. Uh, you feel humility. But I think you also feel lonely, small, insignificant. You know, mm-hmm. there's a, a profound sense of... of Loneliness, I think, or just the universe is so big and I'm so small. But imagine in the near-term future, you know, your, your grandchild or your great-grandchild looks up in the sky and, and his mother can point to a star and say, you know, that star right there, that star has a planet just like Earth and it harbors life. That's a different perspective. <laughs> that's, that's completely different, you know, when we can look up in the sky and know that. It's a game changer. You know, I suppose where our most of our minds go would be to science fiction, which is the place where we have imaginatively explored that. Um, right. But then it's so interesting for me to read that in 2011, Kepler actually discovered a planet that had a double sunset like the one in Star Wars. Yes, so that, yes, right, yes. So that even, like the Tatooine, right, the Tatooine. science fiction. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, I mean, do you watch science fiction or read science fiction? How do you populate your imagination with, yeah. with what you that? You know, interestingly, I'm an exception to the rule. I, I did not grow up as an avid science fiction Star fan. Trek fan? It's just be, that's um, just. I like it. You know, don't get me wrong. I yeah. do. I like it. It's funny with Star Trek, more than the alien encounters, you know, I I really enjoyed the ethical questions that Star Trek raises, you know. I loved the character Data, you know, and what that meant for our humanity. And I I didn't need any help with my imagination, I guess. (laughs) I didn't 
need science fiction. But it is interesting how science informs science fiction, but the opposite is quite true as well. Science fiction informs, not informs science, but inspires science as well. Um, it's an interesting interplay that speaks to our humanity. Listen again, download, and share this conversation with Natalie Battaglia through our website, onbeing.org. There you can also find out how to subscribe to our podcast with all of my interviews, edited and unedited, on iTunes. Coming up, how a life in science has made Natalie Battaglia think about love as akin to dark energy. I'm Krista Tippett. On Being continues in a moment. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today with astronomer Natalie Battaglia of NASA's Kepler Space Telescope mission. We're talking about what she learns about life in the cosmos and on Earth through this work. So mystery is a term you've used and and it's it's a term I, I hear a lot of scientists using it you know with a Kepler I think it would have had religious connotations it, but even if it doesn't I mean it's a word Einstein used a great deal it's certainly there for you I mean I just want to I want to read a little bit back of yourself um, you, re, re, <laughs> from Facebook <laughs> yes yes it's, well, now I know that's where some people write poetry reality is a poem on the tip of my tongue that I can't quite remember familiar yet distant it, it's a form seen through a veil uh, and later on you write you know that as a scientist you live life as if every mystery is there for us to discover and understand yeah <sighs> Yeah, I, I, I feel that, yes. Um, I think that's what inspires me. Um, I read a lot of people with the opposite perspective, and it seems very sad to me to have that perspective, that there is a limit to what we can know. You know, interestingly, Carl Sagan's book, Brokaw's Brain, it's kind of one of, one of the very beginning chapters is, I think, called Reflections on a Grain of Salt. <laughs> and it's the idea is, you know, is there a limit to what we can know? I kind of have this feeling like we we walk around in our human existence trying to create an image of the universe in our brain, trying to reproduce the universe by recording it in our brain and and working towards making that image beautiful and, and accurate and, you know, learning and all of that. Um, so Carl asked the question, well, what what is the limitation of our brain? Can our brain record the universe? And then he goes through this really simple argument. He says, well, you know, let's look at how many atoms are in a grain of salt, just one tiny crystal of salt. You know, if, if we're going to know a crystal of salt, if we're going to make an image of that in our brain, we have to know at least something about the positions of all the atoms. And, of course, there's more to know, right? How are those <laughs> atoms moving and interacting and all that? But let's just make it simple. And then he says, okay, if we're going to know the positions of these atoms, you know, how many atoms are there? How many neurons are there in our brain? You know, what do we know about how we store information in our brain? And, and he quickly concludes that, no, we cannot know the universe in our, in our mind. And then he goes on to say, unless there are 
unifying theories, unless there are patterns, unless the universe is not chaos, unless the universe is ordered, because if it is ordered and if there are patterns, if there are rules, uh, then we can boil down that one grain of salt into a couple of facts that we can record in our brain and use to reconstruct the universe. And so, so that idea is very exciting. You know, how much of the universe is ordered? How, how can we coalesce it down into the basics? So, I mean, here's a way you've written about, you know, just some language you, you, you've used. What we observe out there is that nature is creative, prolific, robust. So I want to ask mm-hmm. this question here. How does that sense of the universe, um, that, of nature that you get, you know, how does that inform the way you move through the world? You know, the way, yeah. the way you think about life and your life? Oh, goodness. There's a lot of suffering to human existence, right? Mm-hmm. So you, mm-hmm. you made me think of that. Um, you know, nature is prolific and robust and, and all of that and creative. And, and we, are, we overcome adversity and uh, we do things. We push the envelope. We do things that we once thought were impossible and all of that. Um, I wrote those words thinking about the possibility of life. You know, there's kind of two schools of thought as to whether or not there's other life out there in the universe. On one side of the spectrum, you've got the pluralists, the people who say, you know, there are 400 flippin' billion stars in our galaxy and there are hundreds of billions of galaxies in the universe. How could there possibly not be life out there, right? And so the idea is just that there are so many stars, so many worlds out there, there's got to be life. On the other hand, on the other side of the spectrum, you have, maybe I'll call them the rare earthers. These are the people that say, you know, there are so many coincidences that had to converge, so many subtle properties that all had to hang together and converge here on planet Earth to make life possible. And that's probably not very common. It's a, you know, it's a confluence of many different things that had to happen. So you've got these two extremes. And, I, and for me, I look around here on planet Earth and I say, well, you know, no matter how extreme the environment here on Earth, no matter how, how dark, how cold, how hot, how arid, how acidic, no matter how extreme the environment, there seems to be life. Mm-hmm. And, and that's what inspired me to say that nature seems to be prolific and creative and robust and, you know, put itself in every nook and cranny. And if it does that here on planet Earth, my thought is that it's going to do it out there in the universe as well. I mean, you also bring words like love. You just, you just mentioned suffering. Mm-hmm. I, I think something that's very intriguing about you as a scientist, it's not that you're, it's not that you're confusing these things with your science or conflating it them but i sense that this life of discovery that you're involved in does bring you back to think about something like love um differently that it informs and somehow infuses um Mm -hmm. your thinking about that so talk to me about that yeah this has been a surprise to me actually um that my perspective on love has been so informed by science um but it has it's been fundamentally shifted you know, it's, it's, and then I, I read other scientists who've had the same perspective and it all kind of makes sense. I mean, Carl Sagan's quote, you know, for small creatures such as we, the vastness is bearable only through love, mm. you know, mm. and, and this, this, you know, love, this idea is this moving force. I mean, it, it's just permeates our, our, our history, our, our, our culture. I've equated it to, um, you know, this analogy of dark matter. You right. know, 
95% of the mass of the universe being something we can't even see, and yet it it moves us, it draws us, it creates galaxies. We're like we're like moving on a current of this <sighs> gravitational field created by mostly stuff that we can't see. And and I and the analogy with with love just struck me, you know, that that it's like this thing that we can't see, that we don't understand, yet it's everywhere and it moves us. Um, and and science has has given me that perspective, but but also in in very logistical, tangible, practical ways. You know, I mean, when you study science, you step out of planet Earth, you look back down at this blue sphere, and you see a world with no borders. Right. You right. see a tiny moat of dust suspended in a sunbeam. You see the the expanse of the cosmos and you realize how small we are and and how connected we are and that we are all the same and that what's good for you has to be good for me. You know, I mean it, it just it changes your perspective. Was there a moment or did something happen where you where you first realized you were thinking about love the way you were thinking about dark energy? Oh my goodness. I mean, because it's um, a really interesting connection. I would say, you know, also thinking it changes the way you think about love. I mean, it is an energy, yeah. right? It's not it's just yeah. a feeling inside you. Um yeah. you're right. Well, certainly I mean, with the, with my own personal experiences, uh, you know, being middle aged and having raised four children. I know and, you have four children. Yeah. I have four children, <laughs> and um, you know, just going through life and all of life's challenges and adversity and losing people that we love and all of those things make us think about love. Um, you know, we need to be loved and to love mm-hmm. to be happy. Um, with science, I. I I think about life out there in the universe. I think about our connectedness. I guess connectedness is a key word. You know, uh, studying science, you realize the connectedness of all things. And, you know, we are we are stardust. And here I am, this bag of stardust. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it took how many billions of years for me to, for the atoms that make up my body to come together and make this being that's able to take a, a conscious look at the universe. I mean, I am the universe and I'm taking a look at myself mm. through these senses that I have. And that is an amazing thing. I mean, for you, that's such a concrete statement also given, I, you know, somebody else could say that and it, it might seem a little flaky, but you really know what uh-huh. you're talking about. <laughs> I mean, yeah. you've, you've you've discovered right. the first rocky planet and things like that. You really know yeah, these I things. Yeah, I don't, yeah. Well, no, that's a good point. I don't necessarily mean it in kind of a hippie flowers in mm-hmm. my hair kind of way. It's, you know, it's easy to say all these fluffy philosophical words that make us all warm and fuzzy. But, but there are really practical, you know, connections. There are things that I do see that are real, that are, that are part of what we're discovering and, you know, and, and I, I said to the kids in, in India, actually, just last week, I said, you know, we were talking about love at the end of my lecture. And oh. I said, you know, I said, OK, how many they were teenagers. Right. So I said, how many of you are on Facebook? And, and of course, everybody raises their hand. Right. <laughs> and I said, OK, why does it give you so much pleasure? Why? You know, why think about the happiness that it gives you? You know, what is it exactly? Is it you know, you're, you're connecting to other human beings. And, and that gives you joy. You have this huge array of people that you, f- that you f- resonate with, and that gives you joy. 
Um, you know, and so I'm thinking about this as love and, and how we experience the connectedness between us as creatures here on planet Earth. And then I start to wonder, what is the potential when we are able to connect not just with human beings on planet Earth, but with other species out in the universe? What will we feel? What? How can this idea of love be extended, not just to my family, not just to my community, not just to my country, but to planet Earth and out into the universe once we find life out there? Um, it seems to me <laughs> there's an awful lot of potential there that we've yet to tap into, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, I so, mean, I'm, so. this also, you know, uh, uh, this animating question that, that I'm always following is, you know, what does it mean to be human and, and what do we learn about that in all these different lives we lead and these, this knowledge we have? And you're taking that question of what, what it means mm-hmm. to be human, right? You're, you're taking it to this place where you're also thinking about us connecting with life, which may or may not be like us, um, right. beyond our species. Yeah. I mean, there's a there's a definition on, on your Facebook page. Again, um, <laughs> I hope you pointed those Indian students to your Facebook page. I do. Um, where you you said this. Uh, so again, this question in my mind, you know, how does how does this shape the way this work you do shape the way you think about what it means to be human? And you wrote that you were aware of. Uh, the billions of years it took for the atoms to come together and make the portal to the universe that is my physical self, right? That is a fascinating right. definition of what it means yeah. to be human, that we are portals yeah. to the universe. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I mean, that's, that's about as much as I can say about it. I mean, that, that's the reality, right? And why that exists I don't, mm-hmm. I don't know. You know, I don't know if there's any meaning. I don't know where I'm headed. I don't know why we're here. I don't know why we're observing the universe and making this record, this recording, this impression of the universe in our brain, this thing that is our brain. I don't know why. But I know that it's leading us someplace, you know, that, that we do have this innate curiosity, this, this drive of... of using this portal to the universe to observe and to learn and it's taking us someplace and and along the way it's changing us I'm Krista Tippett with On Being today with astronomer Natalie Battaglia of NASA's Kepler mission The, the Planet Hunters project that involves citizens that you, yeah. you've been part of, or you've been a real champion of, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, this um, is part of the Zooniverse project, which um, provides an interface of, it, it, it gives the citizens an opportunity to experience this excitement of scientific discovery. Uh, so what it is for Kepler... Um, you go to the website, and a back-end computer system is going to serve you uh, Kepler data. It's going to show you mm. the actual data that we look at. It's, it's these brightness measurements as a function of time. And you can loop through these, and, and the computer will ask you a couple of very simple questions. It'll say, you know, what do you see? What does this look like to you? And, and you know, give you some options, and, and it'll just, just very, very simple questions. And you tool through this data. And in doing so, you have the opportunity to find something interesting 
that our computer algorithms have missed. I mean, the, the human brain is an amazing pattern recognition tool, right? We've tried to simulate that with a very, very sophisticated, powerful computer pipeline that analyzes our data, and it does really, really well. Don't get me wrong. But we can't design a one algorithm that can handle the diversity of nature, right? There are going to be surprises, right? And so you put... Uh, a million people, citizens, in front of a computer looking, and they're going to find things that we missed. And that is exactly what's happened. Uh, they have uh, had two papers. Actually, a third paper just came out um, with new planet candidates that they have identified, um, four new planet candidates from the Kepler data. Um, and in addition, they just found um, one of these circumbinary planets like Tatooine in Star Wars. Um, <laughs> right, with one of these <laughs> two planets. Yeah, in fact, it's two planets um, in orbiting uh, a double star system. And so the reason I think that this is so tremendously important is because it shows that, it, it, you know, I didn't understand what science was until I started doing it mm. and experienced that thrill of discovery. It's all about that thrill of discovery, and it's not about a, a Caucasian middle-aged male in a white lab coat mixing chemicals in a lab all by himself. That's not, that's not science, you know? It's, it's the discovery. And if people could just realize that at a younger age, I think more people in, in our country, you know, a country where people aren't necessarily opting to do science, I think that more people would catch that bug, you know, and, and pursue science as a career. Um. You actually did make a really important discovery, or you helped discover the first rocky planet orbiting a star outside right. our solar system. Yes. Well, what correct. was that like? What was that like? Oh, my gosh. That was an amazing experience. Um, so the the Kepler mission launched in March of 2009 and you know there's a you you launch this thing you put this very sensitive instrument on this tower of explosives and you send it out into space and and it gets up there and of course you have to check out that everything's still okay and you know it's like a one month period where we're kind of on pins and needles checking out the spacecraft making sure everything's fine and doing all of our calibrations and all of that and then there's this 10 day period where we open up the telescope to stars and we start taking our very first observations. And it's kind of a trial run. And in that 10 days, in that trial run, we saw already the signal of a small planet, what could be a small planet, orbiting a star about 540 light years away, a star that we later called Kepler-10. And that was, uh, that was an exciting moment for you. Oh, it was tremendous. Um, you know, to see the signal and the data so clearly in that first 10 days, of course, uh, you know, showed that the, everything was working right. So it was exciting from that perspective. But also just to have that discovery to know, I mean, that was our first indication that, oh, my God, we're going to find lots of these things. We're mm -hmm. going to find lots of Earth-sized planets. And that was, that was tremendously exciting. Yeah. I feel like something that's happening now, and you just embody it, is, and somehow these space telescopes are making a big difference. You know, Hubble is one that people see these images. Um, it's kind of bringing all of that more into awareness. It feels, right, it feels more real and, and also getting a sense 
of the exuberance and, and beauty uh, that's not just in the images that come back, but in this process of discovery, you know, in people like you who are working on this frontier. Right. Um, you know, yeah. there's, there's something new happening uh, that, that doesn't all feel so abstract anymore. Interesting. What did what did I was well, what Kepler called? What did he think? He called his the work he was doing celestial physics, <laughs> because I uh-huh. guess they hadn't even that they, is very abstract, isn't yes, it? Yeah. Right. Like, but they hadn't. But astronomy and physics at that point, interestingly, were two separate disciplines. But uh, yeah, do you know what I mean? And that's why I think when people hear somebody like you talk, it's such a revelation. Uh, yeah, that this is what science is. That this is what it is to be uh-huh. a scientist, and and it's it's the spirit of it. It's the the joy of it, yeah. as much as anything else. That's a discovery. Well, I you know I I think what you're saying maybe is that now in very concrete ways we are through our instruments, our telescopes, our robots on Mars, we are extending our senses out into the cosmos mm. in a very real, tangible way, and that makes it so much easier, you know, to to capture our our imagination to inspire us, you know, through the Curiosity rover. We are standing there in our hiking boots on the yeah. surface of Mars. Man, I can I can practically hear the crunching of the dirt underneath my feet. Yeah. You know, it feels like I could pick up, bend down and pick up a rock and toss it over that hill over there, you know? <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's, that's what it's like. So in, in a very real way, uh, these experiments are extending our senses out into the cosmos. When you take a walk or take a run and you look at the night sky, <laughs> with all this work you do, with all this data and these images that you're working with all the time and everything you know about what we call space, um, you know, what do you see? What do you, what do you, what do you see? What do you take yeah. in? Goodness, I have so many examples. It's hard to pick just one. Um, I've had some some really key moments in my life, two in particular, maybe I can tell you about. Um, one is very simple. I, w- I was out on a run, actually. You mentioned running. I was out on a run, and it was summertime, so I like to run at night when it's dark in the summertime because it's nice and cool. And as I'm running, I'm thinking about lots of different things. But, of course, I also think about work and the discoveries that we're making. And, you know, I talk to people a lot about it, so it's a lot on my mind. And as I'm running home, I look up at the sky, and the moon is kind of was hanging on the horizon over in, in the west. And, and I look up at the stars, and in that split second, just that, that fraction of a second, when I first saw the starry sky, I saw not pinpoints of light, which are stars. I saw planetary systems. I saw solar systems. I saw other planets out there. And it's really hard to describe what I felt. It's it's really hard to articulate that kind of an experience. It's something very personal. You know, when you, when you look up and you see something in a very different way, it's like I internalized uh-huh. deeply uh-huh. what I've been Learning discovering, what Kepler has been discovering as a scientist. Yeah. And so that's what I mean when I say that when we'll look up at the sky and we will look at it differently. I've experienced that in a very real, tangible way. So that's one example. Um, another really important moment in my life uh, was when I went to Chile to the European Southern Observatory when I was a young postdoc and working in Brazil. And I, in the middle of the night, the sky, of course, is completely black. I mean, just a starry sky, and you're in the southern hemisphere. 
I decided to climb up onto the roof of the telescope building that I was using that night. There's, there was like a ladder and stairs that go up to the top and a platform where you can stand. And astronomers do that. You know, we go out and we look at the sky and see how it's doing, seeing if there's clouds and all <laughs> right. that kind of stuff. So now I'm on top of this gigantic mountain, not only on top of a mountain, but on top of a building on top of a mountain. So I laid down actually on the seal on the roof of this building. And literally all around me, there was nothing but stars. Right, We don't get to experience that very often, having this complete dome over your head, which is the universe. But but the experience that I had was that I saw the Milky Way arcing through the, the sky. I saw planets that were in the sky. I think there was a crescent moon that was in the sky. I could see the large and small Magellanic clouds, which are satellite galaxies of our own Milky Way. I saw the Coalsack Nebula, which is this giant molecular cloud between us and the center of the galaxy. I saw all of these things, and I knew something about them. I had knowledge of them. And this knowledge of them gave me three-dimensionality to the universe. It transformed itself. It was not a dome over my head. It was a three-dimensional universe that I was suspended in. And, and that was a, an amazing moment for me. It changed the way I saw the universe and, and my place in the universe. And, and it was afforded me through my knowledge and my studies of astronomy. And I, I, I think that it's a gift. And mm. I, I, I wish it for humanity. I really, really deeply do. Natalie Vitalia is a research astronomer at NASA Ames Research Center and a mission scientist with the Kepler Space Telescope. As you may have heard by way of alarming headlines, the Kepler telescope has now lost two of its four reaction wheels, and NASA has said it can't be repaired. So we called Natalie Vitalia up to hear how she's taking this in and what it means. Actually, we got the news the day of my birthday. <laughs> I was there having my birthday lunch when the phone call came in. Yeah, I'm, I'm here laughing, but it wasn't funny at the time. And I guess it still isn't. But um, we've got engineers who are thinking about other things we might do with the spacecraft. So I wouldn't say that the spacecraft is now a piece of space junk. We still have this precision instrument up there, and with two reaction wheels, it's turning out that there's a lot of science that we can do. And in all honesty, our most interesting discoveries are still to come. So I'm really looking forward to that. You know, this is like the punchline to the joke. You know, this is like the happy ending to the story is is coming up. So, So it's hard to be gloomy. Starry, starry night Paint your palette blue and gray Find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash onbeing. On Twitter, follow our show at beingtweets. And the best way to stay on top of all of our ideas and conversations is to subscribe to our email newsletter. It's easier than ever before. Click the newsletter link on any page at onbeing.org. On Being is produced on air and online by Chris Hegel, Lily Percy, and Stephanie Bell. Trent Gillis is our senior editor, and I'm Krista Tippett.
On Being is a Krista Tippett public production, distributed by American Public Media, and is supported by the Ford Foundation, working with visionaries on the front lines of social change worldwide at FordFoundation.org. On Being is extending its reach throughout America with support from Lilly Endowment, an Indianapolis-based private foundation. Next time, Nadia Boltz-Weber of the House for All Sinners and Saints in Denver, where a chocolate fountain, a blessing of the bicycles, and serious liturgy come together. That's the next On Being. Please join us.